Well, I want to speak to you today from Mark chapter 10, the very last story in that particular chapter of Mark's gospel. And I want to uh, encourage you to open up your Bible if you have one in front of you, or to have a look at the text, which will be on the description below the video. And I want to read to you the short account of the healing of this man whose name named for us is Bartimaeus. And we pick up from Mark 10 verse 46, and it says this, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, or Rabuni, it actually says, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I want to just begin by acknowledging that there has been um, unopened in our hearts and um, laid bare an immense amount of um, pain that's within the church family and also outside of the church family that we're witnessing play out on a world stage at this particular moment in time. And we need to acknowledge that right at the start. And I want to obviously just point out to you the danger of a moment like this, uh, which is that pain can cause us to rash actions and rash words and rash thoughts and emotions and responses and our great need as the people of God at this particular moment is to come back around the throne room of Christ, come back to, around his very uh, seat of rule and to listen to him and to understand his desires for us. And my hope that as we open up this particular story, which speaks of a man in, in immense uh, suffering and pain, my hope is that uh, we'll be able to bring to bear something of the balm of the gospel on our present situation and on the different conditions and situations of our various hearts. I've had a very heavy heart the past couple of weeks. This has been a challenging time pastorally and a challenging time to uh, confront and to understand and to be um, more um, understanding of the various issues that are at play at this particular moment. But I want you all with me to listen to the Word of God and for us to sit under it and to understand what God is saying to us in this particular moment. And I want to consider this story from three different angles. I want to look at it from the perspective of Bartimaeus as this man seeking God in his suffering. I want to consider it from the perspective of the crowd and uh, their effort to silence him. And I want to consider it from the perspective of Christ, who is a saviour, who stands up head and shoulders. In this story, as in every other story, for his distinctiveness, for his beauty and for his ability to minister to our pain. And I want to consider it from those three points of view. Beginning then with this man, Bartimaeus, who we can describe as a sufferer, but also as a seeker. 
And I want to speak, therefore, to the reality of pain for a moment and need to preface what I say with this, that pain has the potential to either lead us toward God or away from Him. And it seems to me to be a universal rule that pain uh, does not allow you to sit where you are spiritually. It, uh, it shakes you. And in the shaking, some of that exposes what was already latent in your heart. And some of it, uh, and the way we respond to that then, causes us either to move toward God or away from Him, either toward His people or away from them, and or either toward the gospel or away from the gospel. Now, I say all this because when we meet Bartimaeus, we meet a man who actually is quite striking. There's a few things that Mark tells us about him at the outset. He tells us, first of all, that he's blind. And being blind in a world in which there were no real options for people with such a disability was a truly, um, uh, it was truly a setback and a disadvantage for him in life. And which is why Mark tells us the second thing about him, that he was also a beggar. And we can begin to understand something of the suffering of a man whose very next meal was always dependent upon the generosity or the mercy of strangers or of his towns, the townsfolk who lived around him. But you can begin to understand, I suppose, something of this man's experience in life that he had known nothing but the demeaning uh, and ignoble reality of having to depend upon others and being unable to provide for himself or to provide for a family. It is very emasculating, it's very crushing, and it's been relentless experience of his all of his life, that he's blind and that he's also then a beggar. Which is why the third thing that Mark tells us about him is so interesting. He tells us that he's blind, he tells us that he's a beggar, but then he tells us his name, Bartimaeus, which means the son of Timaeus. Now that might strike you as a pretty irrelevant detail in the story, but you should know that in all of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is never a situation in which the person who is healed is also named except on this one occasion which tells us something of the honor that is conferred on this particular man, that somehow his story lived in the memory of the Apostle Peter who relayed this to Mark. His story lived in the memory of Peter, lived in the corporate memory of the church, perhaps because he became a part of the church, or his father Timaeus was a part of the church and he was known because of his father's reputation. But for whatever reason it is, there's a specific kind of honor that's conferred on this man. And it seems to me that that's an important detail because it's something that we notice throughout the Gospels that typically it is the lowly who gain places of honor in the kingdom of God. And this is the consistent message of Jesus. if If we're reading the Gospels, what do we find? We find that people who have advantage in life or privilege in life are very often those who are most likely to have spiritual blindness. And we see this with wealth. We see how wealth is so... Um, is such a, a powerful uh, tool of the enemy often to obscure people's understanding of God. And so the wealthy in their pride often walk away from Jesus or reject him. We see it also with the educated. The educated sit in their cynicism. They sit in their questions. They are unable to exercise a pure and sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because of their situation of power, I suppose. But then what we also see consistently in the, in, the, in the Gospels and also through history is the reality of what Paul talks about when he writes to the Corinthians, 
when he says to them, consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many of were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And what I want you to see in the story of this man, who is simply typical or symbolic of many, countless stories, is the way in which God moves to the lowly and to the person who is in a situation of suffering. And you see this in a few ways in this story. You see it, first of all, in the amazing insight that Bartimaeus has. He addresses Jesus twice with different titles. He addresses him, first of all, as Jesus, son of David, his royal title, which means that he has some understanding of Jesus being the Messiah, the, the one who would come in the lineage and the line of David to come and rule. But he also then later addresses him as Rabuni, which is put in our translation as rabbi, but which actually is a distinct word from rabbi. It's, an, it's a form of address which is never seen to ever be used as referring to another fellow human and always is used in, in contemporary documents to refer to God in prayer. So this man, this Bartimaeus, this beggar on the roadside, seems to have a vision of who Jesus is, both in his messianic identity and also in his divine identity, which is obscured to everybody else around them. And that should strike you as a strange thing. And how do we explain that? I mean, of course, there's the irony of this, that the physically blind man can see what others do not see. But I think it's more than that. I think it's an example of what I'm trying to explain to you, of how suffering can produce spiritual sight and the ability to see heavenly things and heavenly realities in a way which is so often obscured to those who have advantage in life, so that the privileged are often the blind. This is the story that we see playing out in the scriptures. He has this great insight. Another thing you see about this man, Bartimaeus, is that he has persistence. I love how, how much gumption he shows in that initially he cries out, it tells us, to Jesus, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's shouting above the clamor of the crowd. And when they try and quiet him down, it says, Mark, Mark points out the fact that he says that he cried out, all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And you can see in this a characteristic which Jesus so often loves and honors, which is the persistence of faith. Christ loves faith, but he particularly loves a version of faith which is willing to meet setback and buffering and misunderstanding and scorn of other people. And this is very often the experience of people who are making a spiritual journey towards Jesus, trying to understand if this, this man is the saviour that he claims to be. And that may be your experience right now, that you'll have mockery from others, you'll have the scorn of friends who think it's all nonsense, or you'll have spiritual um, warfare in your life, obstacles that you didn't expect, reasons to ditch this, this uh, quest and to just walk away from it. And Christ honors those who persist in faith. And I want to just point out to you that just like his spiritual insight, this man's persistence or his resilience or his grit is also a product of his having suffered his entire life. And so you see that the inverse rule is so often true, that the last shall be first. 
that the one who most experiences the buffeting of, of suffering in life is usually the one who has the most capacity for faith, to understand the things of God, to depend upon God in a way that other people don't need to depend on him. For Bartimaeus, Jesus is his only hope. He's his only hope, which is why his voice rises up like this in this, this loud cry. Son of David, have mercy on me. Eleazon. It's a prayer that's lived in the life of the church for centuries. And then you see his obedience. You see how when Jesus calls him and summons him, it says that he, he throwing off his cloak, sprang up and came to Jesus, which of course is full of symbolism if you know anything of what uh, the Bible says about what it means to become a Christian. The Bible says that to become a Christian is to put off the old life, and it's often used as with the language of clothing, to put off the old life and then to embrace the new. And he springs up into new life in embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this is all true in a very physical and literal sense in the story, but none of this language is accidental. This language is deliberate, and it's showing us how, how immediate his response is how willing he is to grab hold of Jesus in a way that very few other people in the Gospels are. Other people vacillate and they deliberate and they question and they um and they are and they fold their arms and some of them make excuses and some of them want it but don't want it and they're conflicted of spirit. None of that is true of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus' suffering has taught him the value of things in this world and it's given him a focus that enables him to take hold of Christ in a way that other people do not. And so not only do you see him putting off his cloak and springing up to follow Jesus, you also then see him when Christ heals him and tells him, you know, go your way, your faith has made you well. It's almost like Jesus kind of dismisses him and says, it's fine, you can go your way. He actually doesn't do that. It says that he followed, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He followed Jesus on the way. Not only does he want healing, he wants to know Jesus. And this is a man whose suffering has stripped away all the illusions of, of uh, the comforts of this world and given him a spiritual clarity, a spiritual focus, a resilience and fortitude and obedience, which is only characteristic of people who go through suffering. And the reason why I'm stressing that to you is because some of you are feeling your pain in a new way at this particular moment, for various reasons, I know, but not least because of what's happening in a world and the world stage right now, and the discussions and conversations that are taking place around that. And I want to offer you what the Bible would say at this moment in terms of comfort, which is that you may have advantages you haven't yet fully perceived in terms of your ability to grab hold of and understand the way of Christ in a way that others do not. One of the things that I'm convinced of from my reading of Scripture is that God never wastes your suffering. He never wastes it. In fact, one of the things that you see all the way through the Bible is that typically it is people who have met the most setback in life who are, who are blessed with God's favor and his willingness to use them. In fact, when he meets people who have not suffered, he puts them through the mill in order to prepare them for what he wants to do in and through their lives, which helps us go some of the way to dealing with the question of why God allows us to go through um, what somewhat often torturous experiences in life, why he allows us to be exposed to the flames of, of pain or of suffering or of abuse or whatever it is that we are experiencing. And the answer is, of course, that it causes us 
to be disillusioned with the good things of this world and fully fixed upon Jesus as our only hope. And this is one of the things, the most striking thing you see about this man and why I believe that he is named and there is an honour conferred upon him by his singling out and by the telling of his story. This suffering seeker, God has, doesn't waste his suffering. His suffering actually enables him to see Christ. I want to then speak to you about the crowd because there's a very odd detail in the story, which is that when Bartimaeus begins to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, it says in verse 48 that many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And that ought to have stood out as a strange detail in the story because we would think as outsiders looking in on the events that are taking place here on the outskirts of Jericho, that this crowd, these locals who know this man, who recognize this man, should have preempted this moment by bringing him to Jesus, which is something that we often do see in the Gospels, that people brought their sick and their lame and their demonized people to Jesus for their healing. But that hasn't happened here. This man is, if, if anything, he's being walled out. It's like he's being excluded at the margins of society and he has to get attention for himself. And so this strange reaction from the people of Jericho is that many of them, it says, rebuked him and told him to be silent. And I want you to understand the reasons for that. Why on earth would that be their instinct in this moment? And I think the answer has to do with our discomfort with suffering and particularly where that suffering reflects back badly back upon us. And you can see that in the sense of them being aware in this moment that they have neglected this man, not only now in bringing him to Jesus, but potentially for his entire life, that perhaps he could have been given a job, perhaps he could have been helped along in his life. But the people of Jericho have allowed him to continue in this demeaning posture of being a beggar, And so their neglect is brought to the surface at this particular moment. And that then leads to a sense of shame. And what do you do when you feel ashamed? The first instinct when you feel ashamed is you want to cover over your shame. And that leads to a defensiveness or outburst or anger, which is what is happening here when it says they rebuked him. That is a strong term. It means they confronted him. They told him in sharp words that he needs to be quiet. And all of this, of course, is because his presence and his pain reflects badly upon them. And it destroys their own self-image of themselves and the image they want to project project to Jesus as being a righteous people. And he shows that for being an empty claim. Now, the reason why I'm drawing attention to this and why this detail in the story so stood out to me in a fresh way as I was meditating on this story this week, is because I think it powerfully resonates with our present moment. We have been listening to the loud and disruptive and intrusive cries of an entire community that is experiencing pain on account of recent events. And these loud protests have, to some extent, been met with calls to silence that, And if not a verbal call to silence it, often that response within the hearts of those of us who are not experiencing that pain in the same way. There's the urge to turn and say, be quiet. 
And I want to suggest to you that I think that that instinct that lives within uh, the human heart is, 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 as I've been describing it, in this particular account. It is an account of an awareness of neglect that leads to a sense of shame, it leads to defensiveness and anger, and ultimately it, it, it wants us to defend the image that we have of our righteousness. And all of that's true, and I see all these things at play in what's happening right now on, on the world stage and also uh, within, within hearts. Now, I don't want to pretend in speaking to this that we are dealing with simple matters and straightforward matters here. There are aspects of this that are, as far as I can tell, very simple and straightforward. To be able to say, for example, that black lives matter is a very straightforward and biblical claim. And it's something that we believe emphatically and passionately. But I'm also conscious that many of you um, who are across the board and represented by all races in our church, many of you would have real reticence with the way things are playing out in the public discourse on this particular issue. And I take, for example, the, the call for people to get on their knees or to be prostrate. What is that about? Or the, the guilt-inducing slogans that are used, which um, are, are designed to point the finger and to bring about a sense of accusation. I think about the, the doctrines or the beliefs that surround the movement as it's currently uh, embodied in terms of um, the, the notions of corporate guilt on account of your skin color. And all of these things are very problematic from a Christian point of view. And this is why we, as I said last week, I believe that we have to exercise a real discernment in terms of the way we think about and engage with the conversations that are taking place out there. Because I believe that as Christians, our call to be distinct, our call to be a counterculture, means that if and when you decide to engage in uh, political discourse and um, the, the conversation that's happening on a public in, on a public level, if and when you decide to do that, the most important thing always is that you do so as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus. And a lot of that means rejecting um, the temptation to merely mimic the language and tone and the arguments of the world out there and instead seek to uh, embody the way of Christ. Because it seems to me that Christ has shown us a way forward in all of these things. This is the Lord Jesus who himself lived under oppressive regimes, who was under the rule of that corrupt Herod who murdered his own cousin, who was also under, under the rule of the Roman Empire. So Jesus was no stranger to the experiences of oppression and he suffered himself. And what I'm trying to keep reminding us of is this fact, that we have a saviour who identifies with us in our pain, who has experienced oppression, who like a lamb before its shearers was silent, he went to that place of oppression with a knee in the neck. He was there for us. And so as disciples of Christ, we must constantly seek to get into the mind of Christ and understand the way of Christ and understand his answer to the current situation. But my main point is not that. My main point is to consider this temptation of the crowd to silence the shouting and to understand that there are many brothers and sisters within our church and other Christians outside of the church who are from a black or mixed race heritage who are experiencing real pain right now. And one of the burdens of the past couple of weeks has been becoming increasingly conscious of the, the depth 
and the widespread severity of that pain within the community of black and mixed race people and particularly as I'm aware among Christians because they're the people with whom I'm speaking. And the elders of this particular church have spent many, many hours in one-to-one and also group conversations trying to better get into the reality of what's happening here and understand it. And you ask, well, why, why has this pain been unearthed across the board, simultaneously among an entire community? And it's because the experiences of racism and the experiences of racial prejudice and the experience of the demeaning aspects and the dehumanizing aspects of living in a world that has these hidden and not hidden uh, prejudices has caused, has caused a pent-up well of, of frustration and agony and of pain. And it's because this is real, because the experiences are real, and we acknowledge it, and we want to emphatically state that. And I want to point that out because the question that comes to us who are not black and who have not experienced these things is a question of how we respond. And it seems to me that there are a couple of choices, just as there were choices for this crowd in this particular moment. You can either take the choice of, of opting for silence, I suppose, in terms of that urge to, to obstruct or to rebuke or to... Um, or to silence that, that painful cry that's, that's being heard because of our discomfort with suffering. Or we can opt for the pathway of Christ, which is to provide opportunity for healing to come through the gospel. The gospel is not only a hope for those who are experiencing pain, but it's also a hope for us who have experienced privilege and have experienced the joys of um, not having gone through life experiencing these things, which is a good thing. And the gospel is for us in this sense, that it enables us to begin with the reality, as I was trying to explain last week, the reality of the the universally impacting depravity of sin, total depravity. And the beauty of that doctrine, and the reason why it's the foundation, or one of the foundation stones of being able to take hold of Uh, the gospel, and why we must always begin with the recognition of depravity and of the pervasiveness of sin. The reason why we have to start with that language and understand that is because it doesn't allow us to say that sin is out there, but it's not here in my heart. It melts away defenses because none of us have been able to approach Christ on any other basis than our unworthiness. So there's no need to be defensive. There's no need to put up walls. There's no need to to make excuses. There's no need to uh, answer with questions. There's just a simple approach to this which says, yeah, we know. We know that we are flawed. All of us, all of us, no matter what your background, all of us are flawed. And it enables us to converse on the basis of humility enables us not to converse on the basis of accusation or or defense, but on the basis of humility. And my plea, my urge to all of us is to stand on that understanding because it is only through that understanding that, that we can then draw near to the healing power of Jesus. It's only as the crowd 
had changed their mind about Bartimaeus' right to be near Jesus, that they then made a possibility of him coming to Christ. It's only then that they could see the wonder of this man's life changed and of our own need for healing. We can only receive the power of the gospel when we start from a place of humility, when we start from a place of recognizing our depravity and our brokenness without Jesus. And I want to say to you on this, before we look at our final aspect of this story, I want to say to you that as a church family, we're not just going to lay this issue to rest. We're going to seek to get into the depths of it and understand it better as a family. My ultimate heart is that we'll be together again soon and that the physical presence will enable us to minister in love to one another in a way that is actually quite difficult, if not impossible, in our current situation of lockdown, where we can all sit in our silos of our own homes, thinking our own thoughts and having our own opinions and not dealing with our frustrations or our um, misunderstandings or whatever else it is that's going on. And I think part of that is a symptom of our present situation of being in lockdown, and we need to be aware of that. True reconciliation, biblical reconciliation, comes through the gospel, but it also comes in face-to-face giving and receiving of love, the giving and receiving of forgiveness, the ability to listen and to hear and to understand. And I want to just offer you assurance that we're going to make deliberate steps forward as a pastoral team to make sure that our church is a place in which there can, the questions can be laid open and the issues can be bared and we can be fully cognizant of what's, what, what people have suffered so that we can, we can minister to that in love. Because anything less than that is less than the gospel. Anything less than that is less than the hope we have in Christ. And that's where I want to lead us. And as you can tell, I have my own questions and, and hesitations about the, the issues that are taking place on a, a public stage, and that will disappoint some of you. I understand that. But I'm a minister of the Word and a pastor of a church, which means that my role is to seek to bring about the wonderful beauty of reconciliation within the body of Christ, because as Paul says, we are ministers of reconciliation. That's our calling. That is, as I was trying to explain last week, this is what it means to be a counterculture. We're not sweeping things away. We're not ignoring things. We absolutely want to seek the balm of the gospel in this particular situation and scenario, as in all others. I want to say, last of all, and point you to the Saviour Christ. We've considered this suffering seeker, the man Bartimaeus, and we've considered the silencing crowd and what that tells us about our own hearts. But I want us, lastly, to look at Jesus. And the reason why I want us to look at Jesus is because, as always, he is so captivating. When we meet him, we see him in his purity. We see him in his gentleness. We see him in his compassion. We see him in his strength and his individuality in the way that he stands out from everybody else. Christ is unique. I saw someone put it like this this week. They said, Jesus is the only figure in history that doesn't look worse in the light. Or we can put it positively. He's the only figure in history who looks better in the light. For every other person, even your most treasured heroes, when the light is shone upon them, you see their flaws and you see their weaknesses and you see their hypocrisy and the mess of their lives. And let's just acknowledge this is true of all of us, which is why we need a saviour like this. And I love how 
the standout statement about him in this story is his title, Son of David. Because it tells us two things simultaneously about this Jesus. It tells us about his royalty and his royal demeanor. And it seems to me at a moment like this, when there's so much division in our world, what is needed above all is the leadership of someone with royal demeanor. We look at our presidents and we look at prime ministers and we do not see this. We see playfulness and willingness to undermine the public good. We look at our celebrities desperately grasping for attention and in hypocrisy and we think this is not what we're talking about. When we see Christ, we see someone different. We see the son of David, someone with this royal demeanor, but we also remember, see a shepherd. Because David was not only royal, but he was a shepherd who knew how to tend to the needs of his flock. And that is the savior that I want you to think about now. He's a shepherd who draws near to you in your pain. Who tends to those broken bones or those diseases or those ticks and those parasites that affect the flock. Who looks for the sheep who's wandered off. This is Jesus. Which is why you see him stopping. This is the first thing we see about him. How it says when he hears the cry, it says he stopped. Or it can be translated, he stood still. It seems to me that one of the reasons why we so struggle to be compassionate and empathetic is because of our hurry. We always have more to do than we can get done. And hurry does not lead to love. It does not lead to the ability to minister to those who are broken. Jesus is never in a hurry. Jesus walks slowly through crowds and he stops as and when needs are apparent to him. And this is what he does when he hears the cry of Bartimaeus. He doesn't join in with the the rebuking and the silencing of the crowd or just ignore him. He stops. He, He attends. He focuses. He listens. And he does the same thing when you cry out to him. You also see how he asks Bartimaeus a question. Did you notice this? When Bartimaeus springs up and comes in front of him, responds to the sound of Jesus' voice and is there in front of him. Jesus asks him this question, what do you want me to do for you? And in a story that's full of odd details, this is another odd detail. Because you think, why on earth would Jesus ask such an obvious question? Why would he ask this man who is clearly blind, who is clearly suffering, what do you want me to do for you? When Jesus has healed the blind, we know he can do that. And I think the answer is that he wants to give Bartimaeus a sense of dignity and a sense of agency. It's put like this by one of the commentators. It says, he responds to the blind man not as an it, but as a thou. In other words, a you. By asking him a question, thus allowing him to express himself as a person, rather than apologizing for himself as a social problem or a victim. Bartimaeus' experience in life has been to put himself in that role of being a social problem or a victim. And it would have affected his whole sense of who he was and his humanity and his manhood. But Jesus treats him as a fellow man. And he asks him the question. He gives him the dignity of answering the question. He gives him agency. He gives him choice. Jesus treats us in much the same way. We don't approach him so much 
as victims, whereas we approach him as people with choice, with the ability to say what we need from him and, and knowing that he listens to, to our requests. And the last thing I want you to notice about Jesus is how he does in fact make him whole, how he makes Bartimaeus whole. It says in this last verse that, on the 52nd verse, it says, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. It's a very interesting, interesting thing in the Greek language that the word for healed, which is there translated made you well, is the same word for saved. It's the same word and it's employed in different way, ways in the Gospels according to context. Sometimes it's translated healed and sometimes it's translated saved. And I think that's no accident because ultimately the nature of our salvation is healing. It's being healed of our sin and the disease of sin which would separate us from God so we can have eternal life. But it's actually also more than that. It's also healing from the effects of sin in our lives. Salvation is healing. Which means that you can come to Jesus with your anxieties and be healed. It means you can come to him with your shame and be healed. It means you can come to him with the trauma of past experiences and be healed. It means you can come to him with your eating disorder and be healed. It means you can come to him with your slavery to sin, or what we today describe as addiction, but the New Testament calls slavery. You can come to him with your slavery and be healed and be set free. It means you can come to him with your callousness of heart and be healed. You can come to him with your pride or with your anger or with your envy or with your lust or whatever it is that is actually causing you harm right now. And you can come to him and you can be healed. Jesus made him whole. He healed him. I know that when you're going through a season of pain, the great and greatest danger is that you begin to fail to trust that Jesus has the answer. And my strongest plea to all of us, whatever dialogue or questions or frustrations or anger or hurt or whatever it is that's going on in our hearts at this particular moment, that we turn it toward Jesus in an act of faith and an act of trust because we can trust his heart. I want to lead you in prayer as we invite Pete and Ramsey to come and help us worship and come back to Christ now. Jesus, when we read the stories of the Gospels, we essentially see two groups, as it were. We see on the one hand flawed humanity in all of our mess, whether as those who suffer or those who cause suffering, people who are wrestling with the problems of life or who are actually wrestling with our own pride or our bitterness or whatever it is. We see, we see humans in their, all of the reality of our existence. And then on the other hand, we see you, Lord Jesus. And I'm so thankful that we worship a Savior who looks better in the light. I'm so thankful that we worship a Savior 
whose words and deeds express and modeled the love of God, now you came down to us in our lowest state. I'm so thankful, Lord, that we don't follow a flawed leader because so much and so many of the leaders that we see in the world around us are so full of disappointing failures, each one of us included. And so we come to you, Jesus. You're different. It's an understatement, Lord. You are startlingly different. And so we come to you. We pray, Lord, would you just minister to our hearts now? We pray you break down, Lord, our flawed human reactions and emotions. We pray you'll humble us again before the cross of Christ, conscious of our depravity, conscious of our sin, conscious of our need for humility and repentance in all things. We love you, Lord. We thank you for you as a saviour who died for us upon the cross. We thank you, Lord, that your blood was shed so that our sin could be atoned for and so that we could know true reconciliation with God and with each other. There is nothing so powerful in all creation as the potent healing fountain of your blood. So we come to you now. Minister to us in Jesus' precious name, Lord. Amen.